Hello and welcome to Serial Killing, a podcast, where we also veer off the serial killer path to delve into other topics within our beloved true crime community. This week's podcast will be on Charles Whitman, and he's one of my top shelf kind of people, so be prepared. Charles Joseph Whitman was born on June 24, 1941 in Lake Worth, Florida. So let's get into some history for that time. Now, just a couple of years before, the Soviet Union and Nazi Germany signed the Molotov-Ribbentrop Non-Aggression Pact on August 23rd of 39. World War II would officially begin the next month when Germany invaded Poland. Hitler and Mussolini announced they were at war with America, who retaliated with its own declaration of war. The United States Service Organizations, also known as the USO, was created by Franklin D. Roosevelt and was a nonprofit organization founded with the intention of providing entertainment and support services to U.S. troops and their families. Many celebrities soon became involved, Bob Hope being the most notable one. Winston Churchill launched his V for Victory campaign across Europe. The USSR and Japan signed a non-aggression pact during World War II. In North America, Allies pushed back against German troops during Operation Crusader. Some notable people born in 1941 include Paul Simon, Beau Bridges, Mama Cass, Neil Diamond, Art Garfunkel, Otis Redding, and Martha Stewart. The Disney movie Dumbo was released. And as far as the cost of living goes, an average new house would have set you back about $4,075 and the average yearly wage was $1,750. A gallon of gas was just 12 cents, and a new car average price would have been about $850. So this was the world that Charles was born into. His parents were Charles Adolphus Whitman Jr. and Margaret Elizabeth Hodges. So Charles, the father, was born in 1919 in Savannah, Georgia. He was one of four children, but he and his brother were given up by his mother to be raised in a Savannah orphanage, the Bethesda Orphans Home for Boys. Now, I wasn't able to find out exactly why they were given up, but being the time period, I would say most likely out of poverty. Now, this orphanage was the oldest child-caring institution in the country. It was founded in 1740 by Reverend George Whitefield, and the facility was visited by many of the country's founding fathers. One of its earliest supporters was actually Benjamin Franklin. The boys at this orphanage were strongly disciplined, but taught a trade so that they were ready to go to work and earn a living once they were adults. Most of the orphanage's food was grown and tended to by the boys. 
So he was described as having a quote, ruddy round face and neatly cut slicked to the side hair, complemented by a stocky solid body, unquote, in a book called A Sniper in the Tower, The Charles Whitman Murders. Charles's father owned and ran a plumbing business and was a well-known social climber. He worked incredibly hard and was considered a self-made man. He was actually elected to the Democratic Party's County Executive Committee. He definitely rubbed elbows with prominent politicians. Now, Margaret Elizabeth Hodges was born in 1922 in Savannah, Georgia. Both of her parents were natives of Georgia as well. So 20-year-old Charles married 17-year-old Margaret in 1939, and they had their first son, Charles Joseph, who is our subject. They would then go on to have two more sons, Patrick, born in 1945, and John Michael, born in 1949. Charles's birth was described as normal. There were no issues, and he was a very healthy baby. When he was a toddler, he did attend private preschools and was also in a private kindergarten. In 1947, when Charles was six years old, his mother enrolled him at Sacred Hearts Catholic Grade School, located next to their church. Charles's father owned and ran a plumbing business, and his mother Margaret was the bookkeeper for that business. As successful as they were at running that business, they were not successful in their marriage. It has been said that his father ran an authoritarian home, and he was emotionally and physically abusive to his wife and his sons. He once said, quote, I did on many occasions beat my wife, but I loved her. I did and do have an awful temper, but my wife was awful stubborn, and we had some clashes over the more than 25 years of our life together. I have to admit, because of my temper, I knocked her around. With all three of my sons, it was yes sir and no sir. They minded me. The way I looked at it, I am not ashamed of any spankings. I don't think I spanked enough if you want to know the truth about it. I think they should have been punished more than they were punished." Unquote. So guys, you heard it correctly. Father Whitman believed that his sons were, quote, spoiled rotten and some of the neighbors, not knowing what was going on behind closed doors, kind of agreed with him. But he also bought the house right next door to his own and then gave it to his mother who had left him at the orphanage. So it would seem that he had a tender side. Now, when Charles was a child, he was described as a polite little boy who seldom ever lost his temper. He was very active in the Boy Scouts. He played the piano beautifully, as beautifully as any child who sat playing while a belt was sitting on the piano just in case his attention should wander. Charles also loved to go hunting. When he was 12 years old, he received national recognition by becoming the youngest Eagle Scout in the world. Though if you asked people that knew them, they would say that that achievement was very much due to the constant pressure from his father. He also kept a paper route where he delivered the Miami Herald all around Lake Worth. 
he was a model student in school and excelled in his classes. He was described as highly intelligent and had an IQ of 138, which is considered quite gifted. It also seems that young Charles was preoccupied with making money from a very early age as well, and this would remain a high priority his entire life. There was, of course, the paper route, but he was always busy and working on things. One of his friends stated, quote, he was always busy working and usually had some sort of job, unquote. Keep in mind, though, that while he did indeed excel in most all things he tried, it has been suggested that any indication of failure or less than enthusiastic attitude were met with most often physical discipline from his father. Margaret herself was a very devout Roman Catholic, and she had her boys attend Mass with her, all three of them becoming altar boys at the Sacred Heart Roman Catholic Church. Margaret was described as a perfectly good mother. One of the local police officers stated she was, quote, one of the most gracious ladies he had ever known. She tried desperately to instill her deep religious devotion in her sons, unquote. Charles's father was also a gun collector and enthusiast, and he taught all three of his sons how to shoot, clean, and maintain their weapons. Charles himself became an excellent marksman. His father actually said, quote, Charlie could plug the eye out of a squirrel at 50 yards by the time he was 16. Unquote. As the family business grew, they became what you would call quite well off. Charles's father was proud of the money he earned and spent it on whatever he wanted. He did provide quite well for his family. It was just that, you know, he made sure that they knew that and that they never forgot it. Always trying to be showy and climb the social ladder, he forced his family to move between Georgia and Florida a few times before finally settling in Lake Worth again. His father was elected president of the local Chamber of Commerce and the PTA. By the early 1950s, the upper middle class home was installed with an in-ground pool and a large apartment was built above the garage. Charles began high school in 1955 at St. Anne's High School in West Palm Beach, which was considered very upper class. He had worked hard for years and had actually saved up enough money to buy himself a Harley Davidson motorcycle, which he used to continue delivering the paper to people's homes. He was described as somewhat popular, and in fact, some of his friends said he didn't especially hang out with the other popular kids, but rather tried to draw attention to himself by showing off and taking dares. One time he was dared to climb some tower and he managed to climb it all the way to the top. How very foretelling. The girls around him found him handsome and he dated a few while in high school. He had his guy friends, he was the pitcher on the baseball team, and he helped manage the football team. Charles definitely had a playful side and was known to squirt players and onlookers with water from water bottles. His freshman and sophomore years were quite successful. 
But starting his junior year, things began to change. His grades slowly began to drop. He went from getting high B's and A's down to C's and D's. He actually missed 16 days of school due to a surgery Charles had to undergo to remove a blood clot on one of his testicles. But he did graduate in 1959 with a B average and ranking 7th in his class. After graduating, just before his 18th birthday, Charles and some friends decided to go out and they drank entirely too much, as very young adults and teenagers do. Once Charles got back home, his father lost his mind on him. Supposedly, his father, quote, administered a severe punishment and threw Charles into the swimming pool after beating him and Charles nearly drowned. The only person he told at that time was his mother. This would prove to be a very big turning point in Charles's feelings about his father and his control over where Charles would go to college and so on. And that was his childhood, so let's unpack. This one's a little personal to me, so I apologize if I get somewhat heated. So let me ask you guys a question before we get into the specifics because this question applies to my childhood as well. How exactly do parents think their children will be when the child has for its entire life given every fiber of their very souls trying to gain their approval and find that it is just not possible? That no matter how hard that child works, nothing they do is ever good enough. In validating your child's feelings, making them feel like a burden or giving false compliments like, you know, hey, you did great, but this negates the compliment completely. Constant pressure to be perfect and invalidating any positive experiences or emotions is damaging to a child's psyche. So as we talked about in our last podcast, Children who witness domestic violence are negatively impacted in many ways. Domestic violence in and of itself is of course used to establish power and control over another person. Children who watch their parents fight, and especially where one is abusing the other, can develop many different negative effects. Children exposed to this can change the overall structure of the brain and how connections are made and what connections are made. It negatively affects cognition, behavior, and emotional development. They can develop depression and or anxiety and go on to be bullies, get into fights, lie and cheat, and then on to criminal behavior. Some go on to be abusers themselves. Charles was raised by a father who quantified his own success by making sure his eldest son was perfect at everything. His mother did nothing to stop the excessive expectations laid upon this child, though we all know why. As soon as Charles mastered any one topic or task, he was already basically behind on the next one, which is whatever his father decided. That kind of pressure on a child is so intense. His father demanded that he be the best of the best, and even after that, 
he described him as spoiled and deserving of more punishment. So wrap your mind around that. Now it was just sort of known, sort of expected that Charles was to go on to college at Georgia Tech. It is what his father wanted after all. So after his father beat him up and threw him in the pool when he was highly intoxicated and he nearly drowned, he told his mother what happened. When he told her he was in fact not going to Georgia Tech, that he had decided to enlist and join the Marines, she understood and she sort of stepped aside. She did nothing to dissuade him. It was sort of her way of saying, I got you, I support you. Now in July of 1959, just barely after his 18th birthday, he stepped onto the bus going to Jacksonville, Florida on his way to boot camp. After he was sent to Guantanamo Bay and his father still had no idea that he had enlisted. And side note, uh, Charles really had a hard time at Guantanamo Bay and some of the activities there really kind of dug into his brain. So that's something to remember. His father found out as Charles was literally on the boat to Paris Island, he literally called a branch of the federal government insisting his son's enlistment be canceled, but he was, of course, unsuccessful. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. While in the Marines, he was considered an exceptional soldier. He earned a sharpshooter's badge and the Marine Corps Expeditionary Medal. After completing his assignment, he then applied for a U.S. Navy and Marine Corps scholarship with the intention of completing college and becoming a commissioned officer. Now, it will come as no surprise that he earned very high scores and the selection committee approved him to be enrolled. So while there, he studied mathematics and physics and was then approved to be transferred to the University of Texas at Austin to study mechanical engineering. He entered the program at the University of Texas at Austin on September 15, 1961. However, for the first time in his life, he had found true freedom and he also found himself not being particularly successful. His grades were unremarkable and not long after he had gotten settled at the university, he and a couple of his friends were caught gutting and processing a deer in the shower of Charles's dorm. They had poached the deer and were arrested. He was fined $100 and that was it. He very quickly developed a reputation for being a bit of a prankster, but it did not go unnoticed that he also began making these kind of morbid and disturbing statements. Statements such as, one evening while sitting on the balcony of his dorm room with a friend, Charles said, quote, A person can stand off an army from atop of it before they got him. 
unquote. He was speaking, of course, of the university's landmark tower. He told the friends sitting with him that he'd like to go to the observation deck and shoot people. His friend, knowing Charles had a bit of an odd sense of humor, just thought nothing of it. In February of 1962, during his second semester at school, a friend of his introduced him to Kathleen Francis Leisner, and he was immediately mesmerized. She was a beautiful young lady, two years younger than him, petite, gorgeous. Kathleen got a look at the handsome young Marine and was impressed as well. Charles once said, quote, her eyes are like twinkling stars. They are what fascinated me on our first meeting. I can honestly say that she is the most versatile woman I have ever known, unquote. And I find his use of the word versatile a bit odd. What do you think? The attraction, of course, was immediate, and he spared no expense to keep her affections. And at the same time, he was still goofing off and doing pranks that were, at times, dangerous. But after only dating for five months, Charles and Kathleen decided to get married, her parents having published the announcement in their local paper. They got married on August 17, 1962, in Kathleen's hometown of Meadville, Texas. Her family was thrilled at the marriage. They saw Charles's achievements and being a Marine and found him a good match for their daughter. But two of his friends later stated that Charles admitted to them that he had actually hit Kathleen on two different occasions, but that he was utterly devastated that he had done so because he was, quote, mortally afraid of being like his father, unquote. He apparently kept a journal and spoke often in it of his desire and resolve to be a good husband to his loving wife. Now, he managed to straighten himself up a bit and get his grades back on track, but in 1963, the Marine Corps saw his earlier academic performance and he was court-martialed for that and also, curiously, for gambling, possession of a personal firearm on base, and threatening another Marine over a $30 loan. He was ordered to go back to active duty and was then sent to North Carolina for the remainder of his five-year enlistment. While in North Carolina, he and a fellow soldier were in a serious car accident where Charles was injured, but the other man was pinned under the Jeep. Reportedly, Charles lifted the Jeep up enough that the other man could get free before he himself collapsed. He was hospitalized for four days. He was frustrated with being taken out of college and his court-martial and began writing in a journal titled Daily Record of C.J. Whitman. He wrote about his daily life as a Marine, as well as his relationship with his wife and family. He also wrote about how desperately he wanted to sever any financial ties with his father, who held them over his head, of course, and how much he loved his wife and longed to be with her. In December 1964, Charles was honorably discharged from the Marines. He promptly returned to the University of Texas at Austin and enrolled in the architectural engineering program. 
But to support himself and his wife, he also worked as a bill collector for the Standard Finance Company and he was also a bank teller. It was also at this time that Charles visited a few doctors at the University of Texas Health Center for mental health situations and frequent headaches. The next year, he began working for the Central Freight Lines as a traffic surveyor for the Texas Highway Department and volunteered as a Boy Scout leader. Kathleen, by this point, was a biology teacher at a local high school, but sometimes worked evenings elsewhere just for extra money. Then in 1966, Margaret, Charles's mother, decided to leave his father after they had been married for 25 years. She wanted a divorce. The spousal abuse had never stopped and she had had enough. Charles drove clear back down to Florida to help move his mother to Austin, Texas, but he was so scared his father would do something to his mother that he had a police officer go to the house, you know, to watch over things as his mother packed up to leave. I mean, that's pretty serious. His youngest brother, John, also left Florida and went with Margaret to Austin, Texas, but his middle brother stayed behind. Now, Charles's father spent an obscene amount of money in long-distance charges, talking on the phone with Charles and Margaret, begging his wife to return to him in Florida. He begged Charles to speak with his mother and try to convince her to come back, and let's not forget that, you know, Charles kind of hated his father. And, of course, Margaret would have no part of it. She took a job in a cafeteria, got her own apartment, got settled. Around this same time, Charles visited another doctor complaining about his headaches and overall mental health. He was prescribed Valium and sent to a psychiatrist. He only visited with this doctor once, and the doctor described him as, quote, oozing with hostility with very minimum provocation, unquote. Apparently, Charles told the doctor of his fantasy to go up on that tower and shoot people. He told the doctor at length about his childhood and how his parents were getting a divorce and that all of this was stressing him out. The doctor suggested to Charles that he return for more visits. He did not. So between the stress of school plus keeping a job, his wife and house duties, trying to get his mother and brother settled, extremely stressful phone calls with his father and the pressures he put on himself on top of all of that, Charles began taking amphetamines. He also began openly complaining of his, quote, tremendous headaches, and the headaches were getting worse and worse. He was changing into a very angry young man. He seemed to keep from abusing his wife, and his friends didn't realize it, but he was getting very angry indeed. On July 31st, 1966, Charles and Kathleen went to visit some friends of theirs at around 4 p.m. and left at nearly 6 as Kathleen needed to go to her evening job that she was working at the time. At 6.45 p.m., Charles began to write his suicide note. I will read it to you. I don't know if this needs a disclaimer, it could be triggering, but I just wanted to warn you. 
I found it on libraryofbabel on wordpress.com. Sunday, July 31st, 1966, 6.45 p.m. I don't quite understand what it is that compels me to type this letter. Perhaps it is to leave some vague reason for the actions I have recently performed. I don't really understand myself these days. I am supposed to be an average, reasonable, and intelligent young man. However, lately, I can't recall when it started, I have been a victim of many unusual and irrational thoughts. These thoughts constantly recur, and it requires tremendous mental effort to concentrate on useful and progressive tasks. In March, when my parents made a physical break, I noticed a great deal of stress. I consulted a Dr. Cockrum at the University Health Center and asked him to recommend someone that I can consult with about some psychiatric disorders I felt I had. I talked with a doctor once for about two hours and tried to convey to him my fears that I felt come overwhelming, violent impulses. After one session, I never saw the doctor again, and since then I have been fighting my mental turmoil alone and seemingly to no avail. After my death, I wish that an autopsy would be performed on me to see if there is any visible physical disorder. I have had some tremendous headaches in the past and have consumed two large bottles of Excedrin in the past three months. It was after much thought that I decided to kill my wife, Kathy, tonight after I pick her up from work at the telephone company. I love her dearly and she has been as fine as wife to me as any man could ever hope to have. I cannot rationally pinpoint any specific reason for doing this. I don't know whether if it's selfishness or if I don't want her to have to face the embarrassment my actions would surely cause her. At this time, though, the prominent reason in my mind is that I truly do not consider this world worth living in and am prepared to die, and I do not want to leave her to suffer alone in it. I intend to kill her as painlessly as possible. Similar reasons provoked me to take my mother's life also. I don't think the poor woman has ever enjoyed life as she is entitled to. She was a simple young woman who married a very possessive and dominating man. All my life as a boy until I ran away from home to join the Marine Corps. Then there's a bunch of handwritten stuff that I couldn't read, I apologize, but to continue. There was a bunch that I couldn't read, so going on just after midnight on August 1st, Charles drove to his mother's apartment where he shot and stabbed her in the heart. He then left a note next to his mother's body that read, and again, disclaimer, quote, To whom it may concern, I have just taken my mother's life. I am very upset over having done it. However, I feel that if there is a heaven, she is definitely there now. And if there is no life after, I have relieved her of her suffering here on earth. The intense hatred I feel for my father is beyond description. 
My mother gave that man the 25 best years of her life and because she finally took enough of his beatings, humiliation, and degradation and tribulations that I am sure no one but she and he will ever know to leave him. He has chosen to treat her like a slut that you would bed down with, accept her favors, and then throw a pittance in return. I am truly sorry that this is the only way I could see to relieve her sufferings, but I think it was best. Let there be no doubt in your mind. I loved that woman with all my heart. If there exists a God, let him understand my actions and judge me accordingly. Signed, Charles J. Whitman. Unquote. Charles then drove back home, walked into he and Kathleen's bedroom, where she was sleeping peacefully, and stabbed her three times in the heart. He covered her body with sheets, the same he has done. He covered her body with sheets, the same as he had done to his mother, and then continued his typewritten note from before. On the side of the page, he wrote, Friends Interrupted, 8-1-66, Monday, 3 a.m., both dead. And then the note continued to say, quote, I was a witness to her being beat at least once a month. Then when she took enough, my father wanted to fight to, and then a bunch of stuff I couldn't read, I'm sorry. And then I imagine it appears that I brutally killed both of my loved ones. I was only trying to do a quick, thorough job. If my life insurance policy is valid, please see that all the worthless checks I wrote this weekend are good. Please pay off all my debts. I am 25 years old and have never been financially independent. Donate the rest anonymously to a mental health foundation. Maybe research can prevent further tragedies of this type. Signed, Charles Whitman. Give our dog to my in-laws. Please tell them Kathy loved Scoshi so much. If you can find in yourselves to grant my last wish, cremate me after the autopsy. And then that's the end of that letter. He then wrote letters to each of his brothers. This is the one to Patrick. Quote, You are so, so wrong about mom. Maybe someday you will understand why she left daddy. Pat, mom didn't have any desire to hurt daddy whatsoever. She just wanted what she had waited for. She really needed that $40. Thanks for sending it. And then some stuff that I couldn't read. And that was the end of that one. The letter to John read, quote, Dear Johnny, Kathy and I enjoyed your visit. I am terribly sorry to have let you down. Please try to do better than I have. It won't be hard. John, Mom loved you very, very much. Your brother, Charlie. Unquote. The final thing he wrote to himself was, quote, 8166. I never could quite make it. These thoughts are too much for me. Unquote. At 5.45 a.m., Charles called Kathleen's boss to tell them that she was sick and would be unable to come into work that day. A few hours later, he called his mother's job and told them the same thing. At about 11.35 a.m., Charles arrived at the University of Texas campus. He provided a fake ID to the security guard and obtained a 40-minute parking permit. He told the guard he was delivering some equipment. 
He walked into a building and into a reception area where he knocked the 51-year-old receptionist to the floor and split the back of her skull with the butt of his rifle. He then went to the tower and began to climb up to the observation deck. During his ascent, he killed three people inside the tower before reaching the 28th floor, carrying a hunting rifle and other weapons. He then opened fire from the tower on people down on the ground below. As shots were fired, people were confused at first, but as the bodies began to slump and fall down, panic set in. The Austin Police Department was not prepared to respond to a sniper. They had revolvers and shotguns, ineffective against a sniper, of course. The city's phone system was overwhelmed and the police didn't have the kind of radios that they have today. But finally, a police officer was able to get into the tower with another one following him, and he promptly saw three bodies. The officer got to the observation deck as Charles was crouched with his back against the north wall. He shot at Charles repeatedly, but missed each time. The other officer came out from behind the first with a shotgun and shot Charles twice, hitting him in the head, neck, and left side of his body. After that, it was over. Charles had killed 14 people and wounded a further 31, all within 96 minutes. The autopsy Charles had requested in his suicide note was approved by his father. The day after his death, the autopsy was performed and they did find a pecan-sized brain tumor, which the doctor labeled an astrocytoma, and it did have a small amount of necrosis or dead and decaying tissue around it. At first, they said the tumor had no effect on Charles's actions that day, but was later determined that they could not say for sure that it didn't. And in fact, it was later determined that the tumor had features of an aggressive, malignant brain cancer and thus could have influenced his ability to control his actions and emotions. So let's look at that, okay? Based on several sources, the tumor was pressing against his amygdala. The amygdala is located deep in the brain's medial temporal lobe. There's actually two of them. They are tiny, almond-shaped, and located just behind the frontal lobe near the center of the brain. The amygdala is a part of the limbic system, and it plays an important role in our emotions and behavior. For example, if we are exposed to a fearful stimulus, the information from that stimuli is immediately sent to the amygdala, which interprets and determines if the information needs to be sent to the hypothalamus, which then triggers our fight or flight response. The amygdala receives and interprets, quote, fear information before we are even consciously aware of it. So a good example is if, say, a dangerous animal crossed your path. Rather than have to stand there and study the situation to decide whether you should be scared or not, you just are, instinctually. The amygdala is also important in forming memories that are related to fear-inducing events, right? So if you say, 
Visit a friend who has an asshole cat that bites you. You know the next time you visit that friend to be leery of that cat. But don't worry, those of you who know about Rufus, he would never bite you. Studies have shown the amygdala is involved in the experience of anxiety and that it is overactive in people with anxiety disorders. Damage to this area of the brain can impair the ability to form positive memories. Damage interferes with memory processes for emotional events. There is also a deficit in processing facial and auditory expressions of emotions. Damage to this area can result in abnormal or deviant social behavior. So murder fam, what do you think? Do you think his brain tumor affected him enough that he committed his horrible crime? Or was he this explosive psychopath, as I saw noted in a couple of sources, who viewed his own life as futile and other people's lives as unimportant? Was he a narcissist, charming and intelligent with big dreams that he felt would never come true? Or did the environment he grew up in, in combination with a brain tumor pushing on his amygdala, push him to kill? Tell me guys, what do you think? Leave me a comment on Instagram at serial underscore killing or on the YouTube channel under the same name as this podcast. Consider becoming a sponsor so that I may someday be able to bring you more content like this more often. But most importantly, thank you very, very much for listening. I know you could be listening to anyone else. I know this, but you chose me. It surprises me to this day, but I love you guys for it. Thanks and have a great day.